Section 9 of Inquiry into Human Faculty and Its Development by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 30. Domestication of Animals. Before leaving the subject of nature and nurture, I would direct attention to evidence bearing on the conditions under which animals appear first to have been domesticated. It clearly shows the small power of nurture against adverse natural tendencies. The few animals that we now possess in a state of domestication were first reclaimed from wilderness in prehistoric times. Our remote barbarian ancestors must be credited with having accomplished a very remarkable feat, which no subsequent generation has rivalled. The utmost that we of modern times have succeeded in doing is to improve the races of those animals that we received from our forefathers in an already domesticated condition. There are only two reasonable solutions of this exceedingly curious fact. The one is that men of highly original ideas, like the mythical Prometheus, arose from time to time in the dawn of human progress, and left their respective marks on the world by being the first to subjugate the camel, the llama, the reindeer, the horse, the ox, the sheep, the hog, the dog, or some other animal to the service of man. The other hypothesis is that only a few species of animals are fitted by their nature to become domestic and that these were discovered long ago through the exercise of no higher intelligence than is to be found among barbarous tribes of the present day. The failure of civilized man to add to the number of domesticated species would on this supposition be due to the fact that all the suitable material whence domestic animals could be derived has been long since worked out. I submit that the latter hypothesis is the true one for the reasons about to be given, and if so, the finality of the process of domestication must be accepted as one of the most striking instances of the inflexibility of natural disposition, and of the limitations thereby imposed upon the choice of careers for animals, and by analogy, for those of men. My argument will be this. All savages maintain pet animals. Many tribes have sacred ones. The kings of ancient states have imported captive animals on a vast scale for purposes of show from neighbouring countries. I infer that every animal of any pretensions has been tamed over and over again, and has had numerous opportunities of becoming domesticated, but the cases are rare in which these opportunities have led to any result. No animal is fitted for domestication unless it fulfils certain stringent conditions, which I will endeavour to state and to discuss. My conclusion is that all domesticated animals of any note have long ago fallen under the yoke of man. In short, that the animal creation has been pretty thoroughly, though half unconsciously, explored by the everyday habits of rude races and simple civilizations. It is a fact familiar to all travellers that savages frequently capture young animals of various kinds and rear them as favourites, and sell or present them as curiosities. Human nature is generally akin. Savages may be brutal, but they are not on that account devoid of our taste for taming and caressing young animals. Nay, it is not improbable that some races may possess it in a mere marked degree than ourselves, because it is a childish taste with us, and the motives of an adult barbarian are very similar to those of a civilized child. Improving this assertion, I feel embarrassed with the multiplicity of my facts. I have only space to submit a few typical instances, and must therefore beg it will be borne in mind that the following list could be largely reinforced. Yet even if I inserted all I have thus far been able to collect, I believe insufficient justice would be done to the real truth of the case. Captive animals do not commonly fall within the observation of travellers who mostly confine themselves to their own encampments, 
and abstain from entering the dirty dwellings of the natives neither do the majority of travellers think tamed animals worthy of detailed mention consequently the anecdotes of their existence are scattered sparingly among a large number of volumes it is when those travellers are questioned who have lived long enough and intimately with savage tribes that the plenitude of available instances becomes most apparent i proceed to give anecdotes of animals being tamed in various parts of the world at dates when they were severely beyond the reach of civilized influences and where therefore the pleasure taken by the natives in taming them must be ascribed to their unassisted mother-wit it will be inferred that the same rude races who were observed to be capable of great fondness towards animals in particular instances would not unfrequently show it in others north america the traveller hearn who wrote towards the end of the last century relates the following story of moose or elks in the more northern parts of north america he says i have repeatedly seen moose at churchill as tame as sheep and even more so the same indian that brought them to the factory had in the year seventeen seventy two others so tame that when on his passage to prince of wales fort in a canoe the moose always followed him along the bank of the river at a night or on any other occasion when the indians landed the young moose generally came and fondled on them as the most domestic animal would have done and never offered to stray from the tents sir john richardson in an obliging answer to my inquiries about the indians in north america after mentioning the bison calves wolves and other animals that they frequently capture and keep said it is not unusual i have heard for the indians to bring up young bears the women giving them milk from their own breasts he mentions that he himself purchased a young bear and adds third faces are fond of pets and treat them kindly and in purchasing them there is always the unwillingness of the women and children to overcome rather than any dispute about price my young bear used to rob the women of the berries they had gathered but the loss was borne with good nature i will again quote hearn who is unsurpassed for his minute and accurate narratives of social scenes among the indians and eskimos in speaking of wolves he says they always burrow underground to bring forth their young and though it is natural to suppose them very fierce at most times yet i have frequently seen the indians go to their dens and take out the young ones and play with them i never knew a northern indian hurt one of them on the contrary they always put them carefully into the den again and i have sometimes seen them paint the face of the young wolves with vermilion or red ochre south america uloha an ancient traveller says though the indian women breed fowl and other domestic animals in their cottages they never eat them and even conceive such a fondness for them that they will not sell them much less kill them with their own hands so that if a stranger who is obliged to pass the night in one of their cottages offers ever so much money for a fowl they refuse to part with it and he finds himself under the necessity of killing the fowl himself at this his landlady shrieks dissolves into tears and wrings her hands as if it had been her only son till seeing the mischief past mending she wipes her eyes and quietly takes what the traveller offers her the care of the south american indians as quiloa truly states is by no means confined to fowls mr bates the distinguished traveller and naturalist of the amazons has favoured me with a list of twenty-two species of quadrupeds that he has found tame in the encampments of the tribes of that valley it includes the tapir the agouti the guinea pig and the peccari he has also noted five species of quadrupeds that were in captivity but not tamed these include the jaguar the great ant-eater and the armadillo his list of tame birds is still more extensive north africa 
the ancient egyptians had a positive passion for tamed animals such as antelopes monkeys crocodiles panthers and hyenas mr goodwin the eminent egyptologist informed me that they anticipated our zoological tastes completely and that some of the pictures referring to tame animals are among their very earliest monuments viz two thousand or three thousand years b c mr mansfield parkians who passed many years in abyssinia and the country of the upper nile writes me word in answer to my inquiries i am sure that negroes often capture and keep alive wild animals i have bought them and received them as presents wild cats jackals panthers the wild dog the two best lions now in the zoological gardens monkeys innumerable and of all sorts and mongoose i cannot say that i distinctly recollect any pets among the lowest orders of men that i met with such as the dinkas but i am sure they exist and in this way when i was on the white nile and at khartoum very few merchants went up the white nile none had stations they were little known to the natives and none returned without some live animal or bird which they had procured from them while i was at khartoum there came an italian wild beast showman after the wombwell style he made a tour of the towns up to dole and fezogli Cardofan and the peninsula and collected a large number of animals thus my opinion distinctly is that negroes do keep wild animals alive i am sure of it though i can only vaguely recollect them in one or two cases i remember some chief in abyssinia but a pet lion which he used to tease and i have often seen monkeys about huts equatorial africa the most remarkable instance i have met with in modern africa is the account of a menagerie that existed up to the beginning of the reign of the present king of the wahomas on the shores of lake nyanza suna the great despot of that country reigned till eighteen fifty seven captains burton and speke were in the neighbourhood in the following year and captain burton thus describes journal r g sock twenty nine two hundred eighty two the report he received as soon as collection he had a large menagerie of lions elephants leopards and similar beasts of disport he also kept for amusement fifteen or sixteen albinos and so greedy was he of novelty that even a cock of peculiar form and cover would have been forwarded by its owner to feed his eyes captain speck in his subsequent journey to the nile passed many months at uganda as a guest of suna's youthful successor Memtesi. the fame of the old menagerie was fresh when captain speck was there he wrote to me as follows concerning it i was told sooner kept buffaloes antelopes and animals of all colours meaning sorts and in equal quantities Mtesi, his son no sooner came to the throne than he indulged in shooting them down before his admiring wives now he is only one buffalo and a few parrots left in Kulka, near lake chad antelopes and ostriches are both kept tame as i was informed by dr barth south africa the instances are very numerous in south africa where the boers and half-castes amuse themselves in rearing zebras antelopes and the like but i have not found many instances among the native races those that are best known to us are mostly nomad and in a chronic state of hunger and therefore disinclined to nurture captured animals as pets nevertheless some instances can be adduced livingstone alludes to an extreme fondness for small tame singing birds page three hundred and twenty four and four hundred fifty three doctor now sir john kirk who accompanied him in later years mentions guinea fowl that do not breed in confinement and are merely kept as pets in the shire valley and mr oswell has furnished me with one similar anecdote i feel however satisfied that abundant instances could be found if properly sought for 
It was the frequency with which I recollect to have heard of tamed animals when I myself was in South Africa, though I never witnessed any instance, that first suggested to me the arguments of the present paper. Sir John Kirk informs me that, as you approach the coast or Portuguese settlements, pets of all kinds become very common, but that the opportunity of occasionally selling them to advantage may help to increase the number. Still, the more settled life has much to do with it. In confirmation of this view, I will quote an early writer, Pigafetta, Hercules, Cole, Volume Two, Five Hundred Sixty Two, on the South African Kingdom of Congo, who found a strange medley of animals in captivity long before the demands of semi-civilization had begun to prompt their collection. The King of Congo, on being Christianized by the Jesuit missionaries in the sixteenth century, signified that whoever had any idols should deliver them to the lieutenants of the country, and within less than a month, all the idols which they worshipped were brought into court and certainly the number of these toys was infinite for every man adored what he liked without any menace or reason at all some kept serpents of horrible figures some worshipped the greatest goats they could forget some leopards and other monstrous creatures some held in veneration certain unclean fowls etc neither did they content themselves with worshipping the said creatures when alive but also adored the very skins in them when they were dead and stuffed with straw australia mr woodfield recalls the following touching anecdote in a paper communicated to the ethnological society as occurring in an unsettled part of west australia where the natives rank as the lowest race upon the earth during the summer of eighteen fifty eight to nine the murchison river was visited by great numbers of kites the native country of these birds being shark's bay as other birds were scarce we shot many of these kites merely for the sake of practice the natives eagerly devouring them as fast as they were killed one day a man and woman, natives of Shark's Bay, came to the Murchison, and the woman immediately recognised the birds as coming from her country, assured us that the natives there never kill them, but that they are so tame that they will perch on the shoulders of the women and eat from their hands. On seeing one shot, she wept bitterly. Not even the offer of the bird could assuage her grief, for she absolutely refused to eat it. No more kites were shot while she remained among us. The Australian women habitually feed the puppies they intend to rear from their own breasts, and show an affection to them equal, if not exceeding that of to their own infants. Sir Charles Nicholson informs me that he has known an extraordinary passion for cats to be demonstrated by Australian women at Fort Phillip. New Guinea Group, Captain de Villain, is reported, Bennett, Naturalist in Australia, page 244, to say of the island of New Britain, near Australia, that the natives consider cassowaries to a certain degree sacred and rear them as pets they carry them in their arms and attain a great affection for them professor huxley informs me that he has seen sucking pigs nursed at the breasts of women apparently as pets in ions of the new guinea group polynesia the savage and cannibal fijians were no exceptions to the general rule for dr seaman wrote me word that they make pets of the flying fox bat the lizard and the paraquet Captain Wilkes, in his exploring expedition, volume 2, page 122, says a pigeon in the Samoon Islands is commonly kept as a plaything, and particularly by the chiefs. One of our officers unfortunately on one occasion shot a pigeon which caused great commotion, for the bird was a king pigeon, and to kill it was thought as great a crime as to take the life of a man. Mr. Ellis, writing of these islands, Polynesian researches, 11, page 285, says, Eels are great favourites, 
and are tamed and fed till they attain an enormous size. Teoari had several in different parts of the island. These pets were kept in large holes, two or three feet deep, partially filled with water. I have been several times with the young chief. When he has sat down by the side of the hole, and by giving them a shrill sort of whistle, has brought out an enormous eel which has moved about the surface of the water and eaten with confidence out of his master's hand. Syria. I will conclude this branch of my argument by quoting the most ancient allusion to a pet that I can discover in writing through some of the Egyptian pictured representations that are considered older. It is a parable spoken by the prophet Samuel King David that is expressed in the following words. The poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was to him as a daughter. We will now turn to the next stage of our argument. Not only do savages rear animals as pets, but communities maintain them as sacred. The ox of India and the brute gods of Egypt occur to us at once. The same superstition prevails widely. The quotation already given from Pigafetta is in point. The fact is too well known to readers of travel to make it necessary to devote space to its proof. I will therefore simply give a graphic account, written by M. Jules Gerard of Waida in West Africa. I visited the Temple of Serpents in this town, where thirty of these monstrous deities were asleep in various altitudes. Each day at sunset, a priest brings them a certain number of sheep, goats, fowls, etc., which are slaughtered in the temple, and then divided among the gods. Subsequently, during the night, they, the priests, spread themselves about the town, entering the houses in various quarters in search of further offerings. It is forbidden, under penalty of death, to kill, wound, or even strike one of these sacred serpents, or any other of the same species, and only the priests possess the privilege of taking hold of them, for the purpose of reinstating them in the temple, should they be found elsewhere. It would be tedious and unnecessary to adduce more instances of wild animals being nurtured in the encampment of savages, either as pets or as sacred animals. It will be found on inquiry that few travellers have failed altogether to observe them, if we consider the small number of encampments they severely visited in their line of march compared with the vast number that are spread over the whole area, which has always been inhabited by rude races we may obtain some idea of the thousands of places at which half-unconscious attempts at domestication are being made in each year. These thousands must themselves be multiplied many thousandfold. If we endeavour to calculate the number of similar attempts that have been made since men like ourselves began to inhabit the world, my argument, strong as it is, admits of being considerably strengthened by the following consideration. The natural inclination of barbarians is often powerfully reinforced by an enormous demand for captive live animals on the part of their more civilized neighbors. A desire to create vast hunting grounds and menageries and amphitheatrical shows seems naturally to occur to the monarchs who preside over early civilizations, and travelers continually remark that, whenever there is a market for live animals, savages will supply them in any quantities. The means they employ to catch game for their daily food readily admits of their taking them alive. Pitfalls, stake nets, and springs do not kill. If the savage captures an animal unhurt, and can make more by selling it alive than dead, he will doubtless do so. He is well fitted by education to keep a wild animal in captivity. His mode of pursuing game requires more intimate knowledge of the habits of beasts than is ever acquired by sportsmen who use perfect weapons. Savage is obliged to steal upon his game and to watch like a jackal for the leavings of large beasts of prey. 
his own mode of life is akin to that of the creatures he hunts. Consequently, the savage is a good gamekeeper. Captured animals thrive in his charge, and he finds it remunerative to take them a long way to market. The demands of ancient Rome appear to have penetrated northern Africa as far or farther than the steppes of our modern explorers. The chief centres of import of wild animals were Egypt, Assyria, and other eastern monarchies, Rome, Mexico, and Peru. I have not yet been able to learn what were the habits of Hindustan or China. The modern menagerie of Lucknow is the only considerable native effort in those parts with which I am acquainted. Egypt The mutilated statistical tablet of Karnak, translated R. Soklit, 1847, page 369 and 1863, page 65, refers to an armed invasion of Armenia by Thothmes III and the payment of a large tribute of antelopes and birds. When Ptolemy Philadelphus fitted the Alexandrians, Athenaeus, volume 5, the Ethiopians brought dogs, buffaloes, bears, leopards, lynxes, a giraffe, and a rhinoceros. Doubtless this description of gifts was common. Live beasts are the one article of curiosity and amusement that barbarians can offer to civilized nations. Assyria. Mr. Fox Talbot thus translates, General Asiatic Society, Volume 19, 124, part of the inscription on the black obelisk of Ashurakbal, found in Nivena and now in the British Museum. He caught in Hammer's toils a blank number of Armi, Turaki, Nali, and Yadi. Every one of these animals he placed in separate enclosures. He brought up their young ones and counted them as carefully as young lambs. As to the creatures called Burkish, Atrati, Dromandaris, Tishani, and Dagari, he wrote for them and they came. The dromedaries he kept in enclosures, where he brought up their young ones. He entrusted each kind of animal to men of their own country to tend them. There were also curious animals of the Mediterranean Sea, which the king of Egypt sent as a gift and entrusted the care of men of their own land. The very choicest animals were there in abundance, and birds of heaven with beautiful wings. It was a splendid menagerie, and all the work of his own hands. The names of the animals were placed beside them. Rome the extravagant demands of the amphitheatre of ancient Rome must have stimulated the capture of wild animals in Asia, Africa, and the then wild parts of Europe, to an extraordinary extent. I will quote one instance from Gibbon. By the order of Probus, a vast quantity of large trees torn up by the roots were transplanted into the midst of the circus. The spacious and shady forest was immediately filled with a thousand ostriches, a thousand stags, a thousand fallow deer, and a thousand wild boars and all this variety of game was abandoned to the roots of impetuosity of the multitude. The tragedy of the succeeding day consisted in the massacre of a hundred lions and an equal number of lionesses, two hundred leopards and three hundred bears. Farther on we read of a spectacle by the young Gordian of twenty zebras, ten elks, ten giraffes, thirty African hyenas, ten Indian tigers, a rhinoceros, a hippopotamus and thirty-two elephants. Mexico Gomara, the friend of the executor of Herman Cortez, states, there were here also many cages made of stout beams, in some of which were lions, pumas, in others tigers, jaguars, in others ounces, in others wolves, nor was there any animal on four legs that was not there. They had for their rations deer and other animals of the chase. There were also kept in large jars or tanks snakes, alligators, and lizards. In another court there were cages containing every kind of birds of prey, such as vultures, a dozen sorts of falcons and hawks, eagles and owls. The large eagles received turkeys for their food. Our Spaniards were astonished at seeing such a diversity of birds and beasts 
nor do they find it pleasant to hear the hissing of the poison snakes the roaring of the lions the shrill cries of the wolves nor the groans of the other animals given to them for food peru garculasso de la viga comentarios reales volume ten son of a spanish conqueror by an indian princess born and bred in peru writes all the strange birds and beasts which the chiefs presented to the inca were kept at court both for grandeur and also to please the indians who presented them when i came to cusco i remember there were some remains of places where they kept these creatures one was the serpent conservatory another where they kept the pumas jaguars and bears syria and greece i could have said something on solomon's apes and peacocks and could have quoted at length the magnificent order given by alexander the great pliny natural history volume eight sixteen towards supplying materials for aristotle's studies in natural history but enough has been said to prove what i maintained namely that numerous cases occur year after year and age after age in which every animal of note is captured by its capabilities of domestication unconsciously tested i would accept in a more stringent sense that it was probably intended to bear the texas and james who wrote at a time when a vast variety and multitude of animals were constantly being forwarded to rome and to antioch for amphitheatrical shows he says james seven every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind i conclude from what i have stated that there is no animal worthy of domestication that is not frequently being captured and might ages ago have established itself as a domestic breed had it not been deficient in certain necessary particulars which i shall proceed to discuss it is numerous and so stringent as to leave no ground for wonder that out of the vast abundance of the animal creation only a few varieties of a few species should have become the companions of man it by no means follows that because a savage cares to take home a young fawn to amuse himself his family and his friends that he will always continue to feed or to look after it such attention would require a steadiness of purpose foreign to the ordinary character of a savage but herein lie two shrewd tests of the eventual destiny of the animal as a domestic species hardiness it must be able to shift for itself and to thrive although it is neglected since if it wanted much care it would never be worth its keep the hardiness of our domestic animals is shown by the rapidity with which they establish themselves in new lands the goats and hogs left on islands by the earlier navigators throve excellently on the whole the horse has taken possession of the pampas and the sheep and ox of australia the dog is hardly repressible in the streets of an oriental town fondness of man secondly it must cling to man notwithstanding occasional hard usage and frequent neglect if the animal had no natural attachment to our species it would fret itself to death or escape and revert to wildness it is easy to find cases where the partial or total non-fulfilment of this condition is a corresponding obstacle to domestication some kinds of cattle are too precious to be discarded but very troublesome to look after such are the reindeer to the lapse mr campbell of islay informed me that the tamest of certain herds of them look as if they were wild they have to be caught with a sou to be milked yet they take fright they off to the hills consequently the laps are forced to accommodate themselves to the habit of their beasts and to follow them from snow to sea and from sea to snow at different seasons the north american reindeer has never been domesticated owing i presume to this cause the peruvian herdsmen would have had great trouble to endure had the llama and alpaca not existed for their congeners the hyuna the huanuku and the viconua are hardly to be domesticated zebras speaking broadly are unmanageable the dutch boers constantly endeavour to break them to harness and though they occasionally succeed to a degree the wild mulish nature of the animal is always breaking out and liable to balk them 
It is certain that some animals have naturally a greater fondness for man than others. And as a proof of this, I will again quote Hearn about the moose, who are considered by him to be the easiest to tame and domesticate of any of the deer tribe. Formerly, the closely allied European elks were domesticated in Sweden and used to draw sledges, as they are now occasionally in Canada, but they have been obsolete for many years. Hearn says, The young ones are so simple that I remember to have seen an Indian paddle his canoe up to one of them and take it by the pole, without experiencing the least opposition, the poor harmless animals seeming at the same time as contented alongside the canoe as if swimming by the side of its dam, and looking up in our faces with the same fearless innocence that a howl's lamb would. On the other hand, a young bison will try to dash out its brands against the tree to which it is tied, in terror and hatred of its captors. It is interesting to note the causes that conduce to a decided attachment of certain animals to man, or between one kind of animal and another. It is notorious that attachments and aversions exist in nature. Swallows, rooks, and storks frequent dwelling houses. Ostriches and zebras herd together, so do bisons and elks. On the other hand, deer and sheep, which are both gregarious, and both eat the same food and graze in the same enclosure, avoid one another. The spotted Danish dog, the spitz dog, and the cat all have a strong attachment to horses, and horses seem pleased with their company, but dogs and cats are proverbially discordant. I presume that two species of animals do not consider one another companionable or clubable unless their behaviour and their persons are reciprocally agreeable. A phlegmatic animal would be exceedingly disquieted by the close companionship of an excitable one. The movements of one beast may have a character that is unpleasing to the eyes of another. His cries may sound discordant. His smell may be repulsive. Two herds of animals would hardly intermingle unless their respective languages of action and of voice were mutually intelligible. The animal of which, above all others, is a companion to man is a dog, and we observe how readily their proceedings are intelligible to each other. Every whine or bark of the dog, each of his fawning, savage, or timorous movements, is the exact counterpart of what would have been the man's behaviour had he felt similar emotions. As man understands the thoughts of the dog, so the dog understands the thoughts of the man by attending to his natural voice, his countenance, and his actions. A man irritates a dog by an ordinary laugh, he frightens him by an angry look, or he calms him by a kindly bearing, but he is less spontaneous hold over an ox or a sheep. He must study their ways and tutor his behaviour before he can either understand the feelings of those animals or make his own intelligible to them. He has no natural power at all over many other creatures, who, for instance, ever succeeded in frowning away a mosquito or in pacifying an angry wasp by a smile desire of comfort this is a motive which strongly attaches certain animals to human habitations even though they are unwelcome it is a motive which few persons who have not had an opportunity of studying animals in savage lands are likely to estimate it at its true value the life of all beasts in their wild state is an exceedingly anxious one from my own recollection I believe that every antelope in South Africa has to run for its life every one or two days upon an average, and that he starts or gallops under the influence of a false alarm many times in a day. Those who have crouched at night by the side of pools in the desert, in order to have a shot at the beasts that frequent them, see strange scenes of animal life, how the creatures gamble at one moment and fight at another, how a herd suddenly halts in strained attention and then breaks into a maddened rush as one of them becomes conscious of the stealthy movements or rank scent of a beast of prey. Now the hourly life and death excitement is a keen delight to most wild creatures, 
but must be peculiarly distracted to the comfort-living temperament of others. The latter are alone suited to endure the crass habits and dull routine of domesticated life. Suppose that an animal which has been captured and half-tamed received ill usage from his captors, either as punishment or through mere brutality, and that he rushed indignantly into the forest with his ribs aching from blows and stones. If a comfort-loving animal, he will probably be no gainer by the change. More serious alarms and no less ill usage awaits him. He hears the roar of the wild beasts and the headlong gallop of the frightened herds, and he finds the buttings and kicks of other animals harder to endure than the blows from which he fled. He has the advantage of being a stranger for the herds of his own species, which he seeks for companionship, constitute so many cliques into which he can only find admission by more fright by more fighting with their strongest members than he has spirit to undergo. As a set-off against these miseries, the freedom of a savage life has no charms for his temperament, so the end of it is that with a heavy heart he turns back to the habitation he had quitted. When animals thoroughly enjoy the excitement of wild life, I presume they cannot be domesticated. They could only be tamed, for they would never return to the joys of the wilderness after they had once tasted them through some accidental wandering. Galenas, or guinea-fowl, have so little care for comfort, or indeed for man, that they fall but a short way within the frontier of domestication. It is only in inclement seasons that they take contently to the poultry-yards. Elephants, from their size and power, are not dependent on man for protection. Hence those that have been reared as pets from the time they were calves, and have never learned to dread and obey the orders of a driver, are peculiarly apt to revert to wilderness if they once are allowed to wander and escape to the woods. I believe this tendency, together with the cost of maintenance and the comparative uselessness of the beasts, are among the chief causes why Africans never tame them now, though they have not wholly lost the practice of catching them when full-grown, and of keeping them imprisoned some days alive. Mr. Winwood Reed's account of captured elephants seen by himself near Glastown in equatorial western Africa is very curious. Usefulness to man to proceed with the list of requirements which a captured animal must satisfy before it is possible he could be permanently domesticated there is a very obvious condition that he should be useful to man otherwise in growing to maturity and losing the pleasing youthful ways which at first attracted his captors and caused them to make a pet of him he would be repelled as an instance in point i will mention seals many years ago i used to visit shetland when those animals were still common and I heard many stories of their being tamed. One will suffice. A fisherman caught a young seal. It was very affectionate, and frequented his hut, fishing for itself in the sea. At length it grew self-willed and unwieldy. It used to push the children and snap at strangers, and it was voted a nuisance, but the people could not bear to kill it on account of its human ways. One day the fisherman took it with him in his boat, and dropped it in a stormy sea, far from home. The stratagem was unsuccessful. In a day or two the well-known scuffling sound of the seal, as it floundered up to the hut, was again heard. The animal had found its way home. Some days after the poor creature was shot by a sporting stranger, who saw it basking and did not know it was tame. Now had the seal been a useful animal and not troublesome, the fishermen would doubtless have caught others, and set a watch over them to protect them, and then if they bred freely and were easy to tend, it is likely he would have produced a domestic breed. The utility of the animals as a store of future food is undoubtedly the most durable reason for maintaining them, but I think it was probably not so early a motive as the chief's pleasure in possessing them. That was a feeling under which the menageries, described above, were established. Whatever the despot of savage tribes is pleased with becomes invested with a sort of sacredness. His tame animals 
would be the care of all his people and would become skilful herdsmen under the pressure of fear it would be much as their lives were worth if one of the creatures were injured through their neglect i believe that the keeping of a herd of beasts with the sole motive of using them as a reserve for food or as a means of barter is a late idea in the history of civilization it has now become established among the pastoral races of south africa owing to the trafficking of the cattle traders but it was by no means prevalent in Damaraland when i travelled there in eighteen fifty two i then was surprised to observe the considerations that induced the chiefs to take pleasure in their vast herds of cattle they were valued for their stateliness and colour far more than for their beef they were as the deer of an english squire or as a stud of a man who has many more horses than he can ride an ox was almost a sacred beast in the Damaraland, not to be killed except on momentous occasions and then as a sort of sacrificial feast in which all the bystanders shared the payment of two oxen was hush money for the life of a man i was considerably embarrassed by finding that i had the greatest trouble in buying oxen for my own use with the ordinary articles of barter the possessor would hardly part with them for any remuneration they would never sell their handsomest beasts one of the ways in which the value of tame beasts would be soon appreciated would be that of giving milk to children it is marvellous how soon goats find out children and tempt them to suckle i have had the milk of my goats when encamping for the night in african travels drained dry by small black children who had not the strength to do more than crawl about but nevertheless came to some secret understanding with the goats and fed themselves the records of many nations had legends like that of romulus and remus who are stated to have been suckled by wild beasts is a surprisingly confirmed by general sleeman's narrative of six cases where children were nurtured for many years by wolves in ode journey through ode in eighteen forty nine to fifty volume one page two hundred six breeding freely domestic animals must breed freely under confinement this necessity limits very narrowly the number of species which might otherwise have been domesticated it is one of the most important of all the conditions that have to be satisfied the north american turkey reared from the eggs of the wild bird is stated to be unknown in the third generation in captivity our turkey comes from mexico and was abundantly domesticated by the ancient mexicans the indians of the upper amazon took turtle and placed them in lagoons for use in seasons of scarcity the spaniards who first saw them called these turtle indian cattle they would certainly have become domesticated like cattle if they had been able to breed in captivity easy to tend they must be tended easily when animals reared in the house are suffered to run about in the companionship of others like themselves they naturally revert to much of their original wildness it is therefore essential to domestication that they should possess some quality by which large numbers of them may be controlled by a few herdsmen the instinct of gregariousness is such a quality the herdsman of a vast troop of oxen grazing in a forest so long as he is able to see one of them knows pretty surely that they are all within reach if oxen are frightened and gallop off they do not scatter but remain in a single body when animals are not gregarious they are to the herdsman like a falling necklace of beads whose string is broken or as a handful of water escaping between the fingers the cat is the only non-gregarious domestic animal is retained by its extraordinary adhesion to the comforts of the house in which it is reared an animal may be perfectly fitted to be a domestic animal and be peculiarly easy to tend in a general way and yet the circumstances in which the savages are living may make it too troublesome for them to maintain a breed 
the following account taken from mr scott nin's paper on the natives of king george's sound in australia and printed in the first volume of the journal of the geographical society is particularly to the point he says in the case of the hunters are assisted by dogs which they take when young and domesticate but they take little pains to train them to any particular mode of hunting after finding a litter of young the natives generally carry away one or two to rear in this case it often occurs that the mother will trace and attack them and being large and very strong she is rather formidable at some periods food is so scanty as to compel the dog to leave his master and provide for himself but in a few days he generally returns i have also evidence that this custom is common to the wild natives of other parts of australia the gregariousness of all our domestic species is i think the primary reason why some of them are extinct in a wild state the wild herds would intermingle with the tame ones some would become absorbed and others would be killed by hunters who used the tame cattle as a shelter to approach the wild besides this comfort-loving animals would be less suited to fight the battle of life with the rest of the brute creation and it is therefore to be expected that those varieties which are best fitted for domestication would be the soonest extinguished in a wild state for instance we could hardly fancy the camel to endure in a land where there were large wild beasts selection the irreclaimably wild members of every flock would escape and be utterly lost the wilder of those that remained would assuredly be selected for slaughter whenever it was necessary that one of the flock should be killed the tamest cattle those that seldom ran away that kept the flock together and led them homewards would be preserved alive longer than any of the others it is therefore these that chiefly become the parents of stock and bequeath their domestic aptitudes to the future herd i have constantly witnessed this process of selection among the pastoral savages of south africa i believe it to be a very important one on account of its rigour and its regularity it must have existed from the earliest times and have been a continuous operation generation after generation down to the present day exceptions i have already mentioned the african elephant the north american reindeer and the apparent but not real exception of the north american turkey i should add the ducks and geese in north america but i cannot consider them in the light a very strong case for a savage who constantly changes his home he is not likely to carry aquatic birds along with him beyond these few i know of no notable exceptions to my theory summary i see no reason to suppose that the first domestication of any animal except the elephant implies a high civilization among the people who established it i cannot believe it to have been the result of a preconceived intention followed by elaborate trials to administer to the comfort of man neither can i think it arose from one successful effort made by an individual who might thereby justly claim the title of benefactor to his race but on the contrary that a vast number of half unconscious attempts have been made throughout the course of ages and that ultimately by slow degrees after many relapses and continued selection all several domestic breeds become firmly established i will briefly reinstate what appears to be the conditions under which wild animals may become domesticated one they should be hardy two they should have an inborn liking for man three they should be comfort loving four they should be found useful to the savages five they should breed freely six they should be easy to tend it would appear that every wild animal has had its chance of being domesticated and those few which fulfil the above conditions were domesticated long ago but that the large remainder who fail sometimes in only a small particular are destined to perpetual wildness so long as their race continues 
as civilization extends they are doomed to be gradually destroyed off the face of the earth as useless consumers of cultivated produce i fear that slight differences in natural dispositions of human races may in one case lead irresistibly to some particular career and in another case may make that career an impossibility end of section nine